Good morning. Again. All right, the title of the sermon is very simple. Thousand-year reign. Thousand-year reign, directly from the text, the thousand-year period. As I said, this is my last sermon for a while. You will not be seeing me. Uh, I'm going, and I will return again, uh, Lord willing. So don't worry. You are going to be in good hands, however. I have a good, excellent lineup of uh, preachers who are able, full of the Spirit, to preach the Word while I am gone. And I encourage you, come out and see them. There's this thing that happens. I've mentioned it before. Every pastor knows it, that when the preaching pastor leaves on vacation or takes a little uh, time away, sometimes, I won't say who, sometimes the members tend to think it's a time that they too can do the same thing. Uh, And and so I want to really encourage you not to do that, not to do that. One is because you get to play a very important role in a necessary task of the church. Paul told young Timothy, which you have learned from me and trust to faithful men who are able to teach the gospel also, or who are able to teach others also. Uh, And so one of the ways that you as a church guard the gospel, one of the ways that you really participate in the advancement of the gospel and the purity of the gospel, long after we are all gone, one of the ways you do that is by helping train up other men who are able to teach others also. And one of the ways you train up other men is letting them what? teach. There's only one way to grow in preaching, and it's to preach. And we have men who are good and able and equipped to do so. And so uh, I encourage you, come out, encourage them, and be encouraged by showing up. Uh, There's a few ways you can be, you can encourage them specifically. Uh, One would be to give them specific encouragement on their sermons. You guys are really good at that with me, but give them specific encouragement. Think through the points they're, they're giving, the statements they're building from the text, and give them specific encouragement on that text. Man, I was really encouraged uh, at this particular application that you made. Thank you for sharing that. that that's one way. Take notes is another way uh, to encourage them, and then live it out. Because ultimately, we're not here to listen to a man, but to who? God, through his word, by his spirit. And so give them specific encouragement, and you will be encouraged by them. See, there's something else that happens that we all know. Husbands experience it with their wives. Wives experience it with their husbands. Parents experience it with their children. Sometimes you can tell your spouse something so many times, or your children something so many times. And then somebody else tells them the same thing, and all of a sudden they're like, wow, I never thought of that before. And you're standing there like... (laughs) right? Uh, It's just the reality. It's not a bad thing. It's the reality is that we need other voices speaking to us than just one. Uh, And and so as you show up and as these men preach the same word of God, the same gospel, it will land on you in different ways. And that is a good thing. And that is a good thing. So I encourage you, come on out uh, throughout those weeks and encourage those brothers. All right. You are going to get a mega cliffhanger of a sermon today, all right? You will get a mega cliffhanger 
uh, today. I know you guys are like, no, I saw Diego's hands. No, I've been waiting for this. I'll, I'll give you the, the good stuff, but there's going to be a big cliffhanger. I just can't handle it all in one sermon. We have been in Revelation since May of last year. Let that sink in a little bit. Since May of 2018, we have been in the book of Revelation with breaks here and there, but we have been there this whole time, and now we are coming to the end. We are barreling quickly towards the end of the book, and we are almost done. So, this has been a a joyful and challenging time for me and my brain, hopefully for you and yours too, uh, but a beautiful time. As, as once, as a preacher, I also hesitated away from Revelation, as many of you have, for many reasons, and, and now I see it as one of the most beautiful books in all of the New Testament. By way of recap, in the first three verses of Revelation 1, first three verses, Revelation 1, 1 through 3, John told us, if you remember in that sermon, I unpacked this further, John told us, literally, that he was going to be communicating symbolically. He told us literally that he was going to be communicating symbolically. And so we have taken him literally and are seeing the symbolic nature of what he recorded for us and the general nature of apocalyptic literature. We have, tr- we have tried over the course of the months since May to, to have a balanced and scripturally informed understanding of the text. Some of you have been here since we worked through John. We covered John's gospel. We covered the epistle, the letter of 1 John. And now we're in Revelation. And we've seen a pattern in how John writes. He writes what? In a circular, elliptical manner. John is very repetitive. He's the only one that records more than one temple visit in his gospel. All the others only record one. John records several Why? Because he writes in a circular manner. In some ways, he reflects the three-year ministry of Jesus in a unique manner in his gospel. He does it in his epistle, and he does it in Revelation. And so John is very repetitive. He's a good pastor, you could say. He knows that people need to hear things not one time, not two times, but many times from different angles and in different ways, and that's exactly what he does. We have seen John in Revelation often uses a technique, the fancy term is recapitulation, where he'll, he'll say something and it'll take us all the way up to the end of the world, and it seems like the world will end, like we saw at the end of chapter 6, and then he starts over, and he goes somewhere else, and he talks about something, and, and he switches angles like uh, the camera on a football field. First, we get the, the picture from the, the batters or, or the, the coach's box, and then we see the sideline view, and then we see the view from above the field. And this is what he's doing with each pass in Revelation. This is why we've said many times, if you read it from start to finish, it seems like the world ends four different occasions. And it's very confusing if you don't realize this is what he's doing. Recently, in chapter 17 through 19, in this portion of 20, John has been zooming in on the final two bowls of wrath, and he's given us the highlight reel. That's everybody's favorite part to watch in the sports game or sports center or after UFC. You you want the the slow-motion, high-definition highlight reel of the the knockout punch, and you see the the fist land in the cheek and the, the, 
ripple effect and the guys go down or, or, or you see the football hit and, and he turns around and he's like, oh, it's the highlight reel. It's the slow motion. It's zooming in. And this is what John has been doing in chapter 17 to 19. He has been zooming in on the final two bowls of wrath, bowl six and seven, and giving us the play-by-play of the end. And now here we are in chapter 20. And today we approach a very well-known and controversial passage, very well-known, the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And so uh, let's pray for wisdom and get into it. Father in heaven, before we speak about the work you're going to do here, I want to lift up the work you're doing in Waihu. I thank you for Uh, those who are laboring that we sent out. I thank you for the team that we sent out to help them, and I thank you for guiding them to Waihe'e Elementary School for this next season of their church plant. May you do a mighty work in that area amongst the people in that region to see many turn from darkness to the gospel and believe in Jesus and be saved. May you do that. May you encourage the souls of those saints there. I also lift up our, our partner church in Kailua on Oahu, Pastor Todd and the elders there. I thank you for their support, for their prayers, for their encouragement, and for their ministry. And Lord, I ask that you would cause the work of the gospel to expand and grow there. Strengthen the elders. Give them great encouragement and comfort for the challenges they have and that they encounter. And we pray also here, Father, would you bless the preaching of your word? I pray for clarity of speech. I pray for attentive minds. And above all, Father, would you build unity in this church through what is a difficult passage to work through historically. May there be clarity, and ultimately, may your purposes stand in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the first part of this is going to feel uh, semi-lecturish, all right? It's going to feel semi-lecturish as I teach. Sometimes you're teaching more than preaching, or, but it'll, it'll flow into exhortation. And so what I want to do is I have a series of charts for you I'm about to show you, and I, and I hesitated to do this at the beginning of Revelation. The reason being is because if I plaster a chart up there for you uh, or a timeline or a graph, it, it tends to be... Uh, all of them tend to be interpretive, and there's all kinds of graphs. Some of them are very, very fancy and intricate and detailed, and, and then some of them are very simple. And so I actually had to make a very simple one for you uh, that just is, cuts away all the stuff, so it's a very simple thing and easy to see on the slides, all right? But just you need to realize this. Every single chart or diagram that you ever see on end times is interpretive, It is interpretive. Sometimes you get it and it's in a fancy book and it looks really good and real sharp and you think, wow, this must be it. Wow, these guys really got it together. Uh, And you just need to know that is interpretive, including mine. They are all interpretive. They are assuming a lot of things and they are just for teaching and illustrative purposes. So there's value to them, but as long as you know every single one of them, uh, nobody would agree uniformly on any of the things in those things. So uh, in those charts or diagrams. So I offer this to you with that caveat to give you an overview of what we're doing today. All right, so the first one, go ahead and pull that up. When we discuss the thousand-year reign of Christ, 
when we discuss the millennial reign, it, it has that idea, just a millennium, a thousand years. And the question that comes is, is the thousand years a literal, does it represent a literal reign of Christ, of Jesus, on the earth from Jerusalem for a thousand year period? And then how do we uh, deal with all the other elements around that, all right? So uh, these will represent various schemes or ideas. I know the text is small, so I'll point it out to you. Uh, these represent various themes or ideas of people trying to piece together the evidence. There are a few main, main camps that you'll find in faithful Christians how they have approached this text, all right? So I'm going to give you that overview now. The first one is called historical premillennialism, or you might hear it called classical premillennialism as well. Um, that's, that's the historical side of it, all right? This is a, to be differentiated from another one I'll show you in a minute, but you have pre, which is a prefix that means before, and then millennium, before the millennium. This holds that Jesus in, as a whole will come back, the second coming, before the literal thousand-year reign of Christ. And so uh, you'll see here the cross. This is kind of a timeline of how they would, very simplified timeline of how they would piece things together. You have Jesus come in his incarnation. Then you have the church age that lasts for any number of years. Nobody really knows. The time of the Gentiles. Then that leads into the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation. Some of them might say it's a little bit different length, some maybe shorter, some maybe longer. Uh, they have different views on that within this camp, but it's right before the rapture and the second coming. And they would see the rapture and the second coming as one event, not separated, as one event followed by the establishing of the millennial reign of Christ, the literal 1,000-year reign from Jerusalem, to be followed by the last judgment and eternity. And so those are the basic tenets of the system. A few notes down here within this historical premillennialism, you have varying views on Israel and the church. So some in this camp will see the two as distinct and separate. Some of the camp we'll see the two as very much overlapping and similar. So there are varying views within this camp on the role of Israel and the church. You also see the second note. The church goes through the tribulation in most of these. Church goes through the tribulation. Again, there are nuances and varieties, so this is a simplified overview. And this has a very early attestation in church history. It is one of the earliest. In fact, you can find it all the way in the first century, historical or classical premillennialism, very early in the history of the church and long held by many faithful godly men. The next one is a subset of premillennialism. It's a subset, and it's also the most popular. It's probably the one that all of you, without knowing it, have been exposed to taught on and are aware of. A few differences here. You have some similarities, the cross, the church age, which lasts however many years, the time of the Gentiles. Uh, you have the rapture of the church. That's a secret rapture of the church at any moment that we're expecting now, the return of Christ, the secret rapture of the church. And those left behind, unbelieving Jews, Gentiles, 
will go through a seven-year tribulation characterized by three and a half years of peace and three and a half years of all hell on earth breaking loose. They would see the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls as very literal. So when you read of, read of locusts and things of those natures, some of them would say those are literal locusts that will be devouring your flesh and, and many of those things. So they take a very, very literal uh, approach to the prophecy, and then that would be followed by the second coming. So somebody from this camp would like to say the rapture, Jesus comes for his church. The second coming, Jesus comes with his church. And so that's a, a very popular saying. He comes for his church and they come up. It's not technically a second coming because he doesn't actually touch feet on the earth. He calls his people up in the rapture. And, and then later, the second coming, when he actually comes down and touches foot on the earth, establishes his millennial reign for a thousand years, again, a literal reign of a thousand years, followed by the releasing of Satan for a short time, mentioned in Revelation 20 in our passage today, who will then gather the nations for the last judgment, followed by the eternal period. A few notes on this one. They see Israel and the church as very distinct. No blending of the two. Uh, they would see the church age as a mystery, they would say the prophetic clock, the 69 weeks of Daniel. It's okay if you don't understand any of this. If it's your first time, you're like, what is going on right now? It's okay. I'll bring it back together, all right? Just hang in there. They would say the prophetic clock of Daniel, the 69th week, has been frozen uh, since the coming of Christ, and we are awaiting the return of the 70th week, or the return of Christ, the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel in the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation period. This view surprisingly to many, was not taught in the history of the church for 1,800 years. Just let that sink in for a minute. 1,800 years. Nobody saw it like this. Dispensationalism sees them as two separate events. He comes for his church, and then seven years later, he comes with his church. They would see the church age as a mystery or a parenthesis in God's plan that was unforeseen by the prophets and is now revealed. I'm trying to decide how much detail to give you on all of this. It's very, very interesting. Jesus establishes a literal kingdom on earth after the rapture for a thousand years, during which believers will be raised with new bodies, regenerated bodies, and live alongside unbelievers in a golden age of peace and righteousness because they would see Satan as bound for a thousand years, literally. There's a literal temple in this thousand-year reign, literal sacrifices, and the nation of Israel is again the centerpiece of God's purposes. After the thousand-year kingdom, Satan is loosed. He gathers all the unbelievers in the kingdom for war, is defeated by Jesus, the great white throne judgment happens, a new heavens, a new earth are created, and we are with him forever and ever. I was trained in this view uh, in my formal training. I grew up believing this, going to prophecy conferences and things of this nature. Initially, it's very captivating. It's very captivating because of its seeming precision with historical details and scriptures, the way it kind of fits everything together. You get handed this chart, and you're like, wow, this is incredible. Look at all, and it helps you make sense of the world, and you feel like you, you got a grasp on things. Very detailed and intricate charts. I would say the devil is truly in the details. 
It assumes much by way of accuracy, interpretation, and historical dates, and they often don't stand up to scrutiny. It falls prey to leaving out or giving more events historical uh, importance than others and leaving some things out and, and things of this nature. It just doesn't hold up to scrutiny, in my opinion. So that's that camp. The next camp would be called post-millennialism. Oh, not that far. Back one. Post-millennialism. Now this one is similar to historical premillennialism with a few very important differences. The church age, again, unknown number of years. You see that line in there with nothing in it? Because they would teach that the gospel, they have a very positive view of the advancement of the kingdom of God, that the gospel will go forth. The kingdom of God, the church will be built. Hell will not prevail. People will get saved, and gradually, as the nations submit to Christ through the advancement of the Great Commission, a golden age of prosperity. Some would see it as a literal thousand years. Most would see it as just a long age of prosperity and righteousness because the gospel is advancing. We'll usher in this golden age. Then the tribulation will occur. Some, again, have different views. Is it literal seven? Some see it figuratively for a hard time when Satan is released. Second coming, last judgment, eternity. Few of these, the promises to Israel, are seen as fulfilled in the church. So they do not see a distinction, generally, a hard distinction between Israel and the church. The church goes through the tribulation, as with many of the other views. This view pops up mostly around the 16th century on to the present. If you've ever read a Puritan, they were mostly uh, post-millennial. Almost all the Puritans were post-millennial in their viewpoint. Uh, this viewpoint kind of evaporated with the world wars coming on the scene. As people saw, there's no way things can be getting better. It's getting worse. Look at how awful this is. And so uh, they took a big blow. It's not as common to find that today, although it is experiencing a resurgence as of late. The, the last camp, the main camp, would be ah-millennialism. Ah-millennialism. Uh, very similar to post-millennialism. The only difference is one sees a positive ushering into the kingdom of God. The other sees a negative, generally. Things are getting worse and worse and worse until Christ comes and establishes the second coming and eternity. They would see the church age. You see, there's no question mark there. They would see the millennial reign as in now. The term amillennial, a millennial, millennial is actually not a good name for this view. It's not a good name because ah means no millennium, but that's not really quite true. It's not that they don't believe in no millennium. They believe the millennium is now, is happening now. They would see the promises to Israel are fulfilled in the church. They say that it refers to a long period of time as symbolic of Christ's present reign now and future reign to come. The rapture in these views is very public. Every eye will see him, the not-so-secret trumpet blast of the rapture. And it has very early attestation as well, similar to historic premillennialism. Very early attestation in the history of the church. It took, took off, of course, when Constantine merged the Roman Empire with Christianity. Then it took off for sure. So those are the main camps. A few important points to note. 
There are many variations and nuances to these views. These are very simple, simplified charts, but there are many nuances, subcamps. It's more of like a spectrum. All of these views have excellent theologians behind them. You probably can't read that, no worries. All of them have excellent theologians behind them and embarrassing ones, <laughs> all right, and embarrassing ones. We should be very cautious and avoid using simple caricatures of an idea or misrepresentation. We want to uphold the best of the arguments, the best of those camps, and respond to them accordingly rather than ridiculing them. We also should remember these things should not divide believers, should not be a point of major division. Somebody once asked, what is the millennial reign of Christ? And the answer given was, uh, a thousand years of peace that Christians love to fight over. <laughs> Shouldn't avoid us on these things. It also can't be avoided entirely. You will functionally live in one of these areas. So sometimes people will be like, I just believe the Lord's going to come back whenever he comes back. And that's good. I, I totally get that. Yes and amen. True. But you will functionally live and operate in one of these spheres. So we can't really avoid it entirely. We should practice humility in conversations about these matters. Again, I'm going to give you my best crack. And I, I'm just letting you know I hold it with an open hand. You might say, I disagree with that, and I'll say, cool. You're my brother or sister in the Lord. It, it is an open hand that I hold that with. There's something we all agree on. Every single one of these camps agrees very passionately on that Jesus is coming again, and we should be busy about the work of the gospel until he does. That is the main point, and that is the overwhelming emphasis that we will have today. So you ask, which one is right? Which one is right? I'll give you my best crack. And like I said, I'll hold it with an open hand. If Jesus comes back and my point is shown to be wrong, I will not argue with him. <laughs> nor will you. Uh, can, can you just go and come back later or, or come back sooner? <laughs> this isn't right. Get back there. You're not going to argue. Neither will I. We'll be very happy. I want to note, I want you to note a few things in this. I want you to note how I deal with words, intertextual issues, and other passages of Scripture. Sometimes somebody will take great care to build a case for any given point. They'll, they'll do exegesis, they'll, they'll work through the passage, they'll do their, their working in intertextually and out from there. And then somebody else will just dismiss the entire position and not interact with the evidence, and they'll just quote another passage of Scripture that's seemingly unrelated as proof that that is wrong. Now, anybody who's ever been involved in any number of debates about biblical things knows how this happens. Well, uh, I believe in eternal security because uh, Jesus says no man can pluck him out of the Father's hand. Well, Jesus also said that uh, if you don't bear fruit, you're going to be cut off and thrown in the fire. Therefore, you can lose your salvation, right? And, and then you just keep lumping back and forth. And so it's like whoever can stack up the most verses that sound somewhat similar to their point is kind of the winner, right? And what happens is very often very little light gets shed in those times. Nobody's mind is really changed. You don't really interact with the text. You just kind of use it. So I want to I encourage you to think through that. That is 
I'm going to say this as nicely as possible. It's just poor form. It's poor form for having a conversation. So I want you to pay attention to how, how somebody builds their case from a scripture and how they respond to questions about their points. Can they interact with the text itself, or, or do they just string together a string of passages to make a point? You say, well, that seems like it would be very laborious to have a conversation like that. If, if you quote one passage and you examine the full context and read it through, what is it actually saying? And then you do the same thing for the next passage. Wouldn't that take a long time? Yes. Yes, it does. But it's very worth it as we honor God's word and seek to think his thoughts after him accurately. I also want you to ask yourself, when was the last time, ask yourself this, when was the last time I've ever changed my mind regarding a belief I had? Think about that. When was the last time I can think of that I changed my mind, that I saw that I was out of step with the scriptures and I became in step with them? When was the last time? Or has that ever happened? If, if you can't think of a time that that has ever happened, I might encourage you to take stock of your heart. Nobody is born, again, with perfect theology. We should be doing this shuffling. When do I yield to the Bible when it speaks against me? Or does my own pride and not wanting to be wrong close my ears from hearing contrary points even if they're accurate? So ask yourself these things as you hear. Ask, what would it take to convince me otherwise? And so without further ado, here we go. This is a two- or three-part sermon series. You get the major cliffhanger. I'm only going to cover one point today because that was 30 minutes of introduction. Number one, Satan's binding. Number two, saints reigning. Number three, second coming. Satan's binding, saints reigning, and the second coming. We're only going to get to point one today. Satan's binding. Verses one through three. Let's read it. Then I saw, or you might see, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. First. The passage opens in verse 1 with, and I saw an angel, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven. This phrase, and I saw, we've seen throughout Revelation, often introduces another vision. It's not necessarily a chronological following from what came before. So what came before, chapter 19, we had the, the rider on the great white horse, Jesus, who's called faithful and true. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and he had the nations gathered for war, and the birds, the feast, come feast on the flesh of kings and mighty men, small and great, and the final battle. And then we have this, and then I saw... Now, some would take this again and see it as 
chronologically following. So you can see how they get that. And then I saw, and this happened. But it's not necessarily what's being done here. John is recapitulating. He's doing what he's done so many times with this phrase, and then I saw, to go to another time, something else. This is a series of visions. We also see, for further evidence in this passage, again, just because we've seen it elsewhere in Revelation, doesn't mean that that's what's happening here. So I, I still need more reasons to say this is why it is here. When this phrase, and I saw, is followed by the mention of an angel either ascending, ascending or descending with a key or some sort of power to accomplish something in Revelation, it always refers, every time it pops up, to a vision that occurs before what was just mentioned or at the same time concurrently as what was just mentioned. So every time we see that phrase, and then I saw an angel either ascending or descending, it points us back to a time before what was just described or at the same time to show us, again, that different camera angle. Here, here, oh, and at the same time, this is happening. Look at the quarterback. Look at the tight end. Look at the special teams. All happening at the same time, not necessarily after. So here we go. Everything just ended, Revelation 19, and we're going back again for another angle. I'm going to deal with the question all of you have first, because I'm not going to do that to you. That would be cruel. Leave you for five weeks with the cliffhanger of a thousand years. So I'm going to give that to you and then deal with the binding of Satan, the question you're inevitably going to have. Let's read the passage through one more time. This time, pay careful attention. I'm going to ask you, identify what elements are symbolic and what are literal. Ask yourself that as you read the passage. What elements in here are symbolic and what are literal? Let's read it through again. Verse 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. What's literal? What's symbolic? Everybody, every camp has to ask that question and has to deal with it differently. Are the thousand years literal or symbolic? Some of you think you know what I'm going to say. We'll see if you're right. You've been waiting for a long time. Are the thousand years meant to be taken literally? Well, let's ask a few other questions. What about the keys in the angel's hand? Is that a literal key in a literal hand? Is a literal bottomless pit? Should we picture this big, vast void without bottom? The great chain that Satan is bound with, is that a literal chain with literal metal shackles that are giants that only an angel could lift it with a literal key to bind it? How about Satan as a dragon? Should we picture him as dragon or as a serpent? Perhaps like you'd see in a Chinese New Year or on Kung Fu Panda flying around. Is that meant to be taken literally or symbolically? How about the lock that he's bound with? 
How about this? Can you chain, literally, a spiritual being? Are all of these elements literal or symbolic? If you answer symbolic, and most would, to all of those things, why is the only thing that's taken literally is the thousand-year number? Why not take everything literally, or none of it literally? I'm going to suggest to you that this 1,000-year period refers to the entire span between the first and second coming of Christ that we call the church age. I'm going to suggest it refers to the entire span between the first and second coming of Christ that we call the church age. As I tell you, I hold that view with an open hand. I reserve the right to change my mind later if presented with evidence otherwise, but I've examined a lot of it. So let's see, this is why. So Satan's binding and the saints reigning in 4 through 6, verses 4 through 6, and Satan's manner, not at all meaning, well, one of you doesn't put to flight 2,000. No, he's using uh, number 1,000 to show a large term quantity. Psalm 50, verse 10. You know this one. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills, but the thousand first hill, not his. No, it's fullness of quantity. God owns every cattle on every hill that there is. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 4. Men take note. It's a good pickup line. Or poetry for your wife. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Built-in rows of stone. On it hangs a thousand shields. Ladies, is that not catching you? Like, aw, right? This is a poetry, Hebrew poetry between two lovers. Again, literally, does her neck have a thousand shields on it? No. I won't talk about what he's describing in this context. Let me use a non-biblical example and then a final biblical one. Haddon, my son. This week, Taylor asked for a blanket or something like that, and Haddon goes... We have a thousand blankets. <laughs> Literally, that's what he said. We have a thousand blankets. And I just chuckled and laughed. That's going to be in my sermon right there, right? He, he, he didn't mean uh, we have a thousand blankets. We don't. He, he, he thought we just had a lot of blankets. That's a thousand. That's a big number. And the final biblical one, 1 Chronicles 16, 15 to 17. This one's particularly important. Remember his covenant forever the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, here it is, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. The word he commanded for a thousand generations to Israel as an everlasting covenant covenant. There we see thousand generations equals, through to Hebrew poetry, everlasting covenant, a time quantifying forever, forever. So these reasons, combined with additional evidence for Satan's binding I'm about to give, provide good reason to see this period as symbolic for a long and complete time. So what's its significance? 
So if it's symbolic, then we've got to still answer what's its significance, right? And so to that we now turn. Significance of it. Satan is bound for a thousand years, and the saints reign during that time for a thousand years. We'll only cover the first one. Satan is bound so he can no longer deceive the nations. So he can no longer deceive the nations. It's important to read that. You should read it slowly. And note what the text does not say. It's not only important what it says, but also what it does not say. It mentions a specific purpose. Nowhere does this text say that all activities of Satan cease. Nowhere does it say that Satan cannot harm the church. Nowhere does it say that there will be a reign of peace on the earth. I'll talk about that in five weeks, cliffhanger, right? Nowhere does it mention any of those things. What does it say? His binding is for a particular purpose. Verse 3, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. His binding is so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Or verse 7 and 8, we see this again. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, verse 8. And what's he going to do? He will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, for what reason? To gather them for battle. So the deception of the nations is so that he might gather them for battle. The scriptures often view the unification of fallen man as particularly dangerous. Think about that. Go back in time to your biblical timeline. Genesis chapter 11. Mankind was, fallen mankind was united. They built a tower, didn't they? The tower of Babel. And God looked at that and saw that as dangerous and disobedient and rebellious. And what did he do? He confounded the languages and kept them from accomplishing their purposes. What he prevented doing at once, he now permits them to do at the end for the purpose of the final judgment. But primarily of note is that this does not say all satanic activity is ceased from happening specifically states the thousand-year binding is so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. Now, I still have argumentation to do, don't I? I have to build my case to what does it mean to deceive the nations, don't I? So let's do that now. Let's expand this out to the Gospels. Mark chapter 3, verse 22 and following to 27. Mark 3, to 27, a famous passage. Jesus has just healed a man with a withered hand. Uh, he's, he's been speaking to people in his house. And then Mark chapter 3, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. He had just cast out demons out of a man. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And check this out. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house. Check this out. Here it is. Nobody can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first, what? Binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. That Greek word bind 
is the same Greek word we have pop up in Revelation. Satan is bound. The message here is that through the ministry of Jesus, ultimately his death and resurrection, he is binding Satan. He is binding the strong man. He's going to plunder his house. And how is he going to do it? Through the ministry and proclamation of the gospel. That's how he's going to do it. Luke chapter 11. Another one. Verse 17. Another famous passage. Jesus sends out 72 disciples, fills them with power to go do many works. They come back from their journey, and they, this is what they report. 11.17, listen to what he says. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, what? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We don't have time today, but if you go and you read Revelation 12 again, you see Satan cast down. John chapter 12. This is notable because now we've moved into the same author. John, right? The same author. John 12, verse 30 and 32. This says, Jesus answered after a voice came from heaven. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Cast out. Ek balo. Same word, same Greek verb in Revelation 23 when Satan is cast down, thrown down to the pit. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And then check this out. Satan is bound, what, what's, what's he bound for? So he can no longer deceive the nations. John 12, 32. And I, Jesus saying, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Will draw all people to myself. The prince of the world, Satan, is being seen as cast down so that through the mission and ministry of Jesus, he will draw all kinds of people to himself as the gospel is preached. No longer will the nations lie in darkness. With the coming of Christ, with the advancing of the Great Commission, truly the scriptures see a new age is dawning in this world, and it will never fade away. Satan's work of deceiving began not in Revelation 20, not after Jesus. Satan's work of deceiving began way back in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, when he deceived Adam and Eve and said, did God really say? And it continued on through Israel, who was supposed to be a light for the nations, a light for the Gentiles to proclaim the majesty of God. And he deceived them into idolatry and he paralyzed their mission and they were sent into exile under pagan rule. And now the second Adam, the true Israel, will not fail in his mission. Satan is, is bound and the nations will no longer be deceived and the gospel will be proclaimed and people will come to faith in Christ through the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and we shall ever be with the Lord and his kingdom will have no end. And this is all in, in spite of satanic opposition and attempts of the devil to derail it. And I hope you'll permit me to go a little long this morning since I won't see you for so long. 
I want to raise a few objections and then close with a few applications. A few objections that you might be thinking as you hear, what? Satan is bound? Are you serious? Can you really say that Satan is bound with the scriptures and, and the world around us? These following passages don't sound like Satan is bound. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that Satan, he calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Or 1 Peter 5.8 describes Satan prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. To that, I would say this is not out of step with what we find in Revelation 12, echoed in Revelation 20. It says Satan is cast down and he is angry because his time is short. It's like a wounded animal, an injured animal lashing out at all who come near without rhyme or reason. He's still dangerous and causes great persecution in the lives of God's people. Or you might think of 2 Corinthians 4. 4. The, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. How, how can we say that Satan is bound when, when Paul refers to him in this manner? To this one in Ephesians, I point again to the primary binding of Satan so that he can no longer deceive the nations to gather them for a unified war against God's people. Satan often, when Jesus was on the earth in his first ministry, tried to thwart God's time clock, didn't he? People tried to apprehend Jesus before his hour had come. And in this season, Satan is bound so that he cannot gather the nations for a unified war against the people of God, and his plans will be thwarted, although he will still try. Or you might even say, let's talk about authors. John 14, 30 and John 12 mention and refer to Satan as the prince of the world. To which I would say, John unmistakably says the work of Jesus would cast out Satan from his position. And this victory of God through the resurrection of Christ over the grave is echoed in 1 John and Revelation throughout. Satan is never called the prince of the world post-resurrection in John's writing. Beloved, I want to urge you, don't over overlook, don't downplay the significance of what Jesus did in the incarnation. It is not just for Christmas time sermons. The Bible, Galatians 4, describes the incarnation and it says when the fullness of time had come, it pleased God to send forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And the ripple effects lead out into eternity. So application, and we'll close. Satan is bound. Therefore, share the gospel in great hope. This comes up again and again because we need that hope amidst rejection. We need that hope amidst persecution. We need that hope against my own fear. Even if you're hearing all that I've said about a thousand years, you're like, ah, eh, I don't buy it. That's fine. We all agree on this. The gospel is advancing in every corner of the continent. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And so, yes, there may be opposition and persecution, but even that serves to advance God's purposes. And so think of that loved one that's just heavy on your heart. You say, are they ever going to come 
to faith? Is my family member ever going to trust in Jesus? They seem so hard right now, and don't give up on them. Because Satan is bound, and through the preaching of the gospel, he will draw all people to himself. Number two, Satan is being is bound and the church is being built. And so serve in hope from a place of victory. You have to remember, when I serve, it feels mundane. Or, or sometimes if you're just honest with you and you're in the middle of a VBS week, in the middle of it, you're like, oh, this is kind of, you know, I'm just so tired. And, right? right? Or you know, any of your service you do, I'm just, is this even wasting my time? What am I, what am I doing here? Right? Serve from a place of victory that in, in unknown ways, millions of ways, God is working behind the scenes through your faithfulness, through your faithfulness in ways you can't see but are impacting eternity forever and ever. We aren't fighting the decisive battle. It's already been won at the cross of Christ. Number three, Satan's binding means your freedom if you will trust in and follow Jesus. Some of you have been plagued with besetting sins, shackles of sins. You, you have a pattern, perhaps, of, of disobedience of sin that you just hate and you feel like you could break it. And I tell you this morning, if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you will be free. Because Satan is bound and the saints are reigning. And then the ends. The saints are reigning, and they came to life and reigned with him a thousand years. What does that mean? What do we do with that? There are other important questions I have. Is this first resurrection a literal bodily resurrection? Is it a spiritual reign? How is that even consistent? Will the saints be victorious over the beast? at the end. You know the answer. It's yes, but how do we get there? I'll see you in five weeks. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I've tried to be faithful to your word. Those who believe otherwise also try to be faithful to your word, and we never want to obscure the reality that you are a king, and the gospel is mighty to save. And if I turn from my sin daily and trust in you, I am forgiven of all my sins. Help us to kill, to mortify our flesh and the things that so easily ensnare and entangle us. And may we live in this great, victorious hope that we will reign with you forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Now is the time of invitation. I'd like to invite you, if you would like prayer for or about anything, I would love to pray with you and for you. I'm going to be here to this room, to my right and your left. Otherwise, let's sing in our corporate response to God. God bless.